the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Six o'clock hour, Bruce Hooley show on a Friday means it's time to ask the attorney and we will do it with Stan Willis of Willis Spangler Starling, my attorney firm, the official firm of the Bruce Hooley show. And I believe they should be your firm as well, particularly if you have a case involving personal injury, wills, estate planning, social security, disability. They specialize in a broad spectrum of the law. They can help you with any question that you have and easy to reach them at willisattorneys.com located just north of the Mill Run area on Truman Boulevard. Stan, thanks for taking these four cases today. We have four emails from listeners. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Number one says, when would you advocate a person retain an attorney for a personal injury case? And when would you tell them to just pursue the case themselves in small claims court? Does the amount of damages you're seeking make that decision? Is it possible to win a small claims judgment for a traffic accident if the other person wasn't cited in the accident? A lot of questions. A lot of questions. Apparently, this person must have been in an accident and wants to know if it's worth taking to small claims court or getting an attorney. So, uh, I guess the rule of thumb that I would look at is if you were injured at all in the accident, then you should get an attorney. Okay. Um, On on the whole, people, uh, attorneys are worth, uh, for the most part, attorneys are worth they're higher because of the increase in the amount of recovery that one gets when they have an attorney as opposed to what they get when they don't have an attorney. And that's mostly just because um, your average folks don't know how to articulate the damages. Sure. Um, how much does... They don't know how, and don't know how to present them. How much does fault play into it? The final part of the question was, is it possible to win a judgment for a traffic accident if the other person was not cited in the accident? So Ohio is a comparative law state, which means that uh, the person who's most at fault pays most of the accident. Um, So fault um, fault is something that has to be proven in court, and that's why you go to court. The um, citation of a police officer does not determine fault. In fact, mm. the citation can be irrelevant. It depends. I mean, most of the time, police officers get it right; they get the right person. But you know, it's possible that someone will be cited for something um, in a in a accident and not be at fault. Um, so you know, there's. Uh, the determination of fault and proximate cause and all those kinds of things are real determinations that happen in court. That's one of the reasons why you end up going. So, mm-hmm. very good. So it's it's not as simple as who got cited, um, although that does that does have bearing. That, that certainly does have influence, but it's not a final determination. Okay, very good. Let's move to question two with Willis Spangler, Starling, Stan Willis. WillisAttorneys.com dot com is the website. What's the process a judge or jury goes through to establish the value of pain and suffering? Uh, this person says, I can't imagine any financial reward being worth the pain and suffering of losing a child, like, for instance, from a medical malpractice issue or an accident where a safety harness failed. So how do they calculate pain and suffering? Uh, well, pain and suffering are uh, 
fairly specific formula. Um, the 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 old rule used to be three times your medicals, but yeah, that that's that rule of thumb doesn't exist anymore. So pretty much what has to happen is a person has to show exactly what the pain and suffering look like. So obviously some injuries have more pain and more suffering than other injuries, and so you would put evidence. Um, you know, sometimes we'll do what's called a day in the life video or something like that to kind of show what it's like for this person on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, now when it comes to the loss of a person, death of a child, death of a, death of a person, um, since since fundamentally there is no way to value that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there's, there's no way that you can ever get enough money to say it's okay that I lost this person because mm-hmm. because you just can't. It, it, money doesn't cover that. Right. So then what ends up happening is you end up trying to value that life. And usually you do that by, for instance, if a person dies and he, he or she has three or four kids and they have a certain earning potential, um, then you look at their earning potential for their likely earning life and then then you take in some you take into consideration what they call consortium, which, you know, is the relationship factor and stuff like that. And then they kinda of come come around to a value for that for that person that way. But uh, it's it's you know it's a long process and it's very much a fact evidentiary based thing. Um, you'll hire uh, sometimes several different experts to establish um, the value of a person's life, and sometimes even that for pain and suffering. So it's it's a difficult it's a difficult thing because. Like I said, fundamentally, you're you're trying to you're not you're not comparing apples to apples. It, it's not an even exchange, so it becomes a very difficult thing. But it's something that, from a practical standpoint, we have to be able to do. So, so from a you mentioned a wage earner. Like I get that you could calculate what kind of wage earning power they'd have for the family over the course of their lifetime. What if it's a child? Is a child more highly valued because they have all of their life ahead of them and they take care of their parents theoretically in old age? Or is a child who hasn't reached earning the time of earnings in their life yet, does that enter into it in the judgment for pain and suffering, emotional pain and suffering? But, you know, well, they cer- haven't. Certainly, ha- that, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. That's Go okay. But, the, but a child hasn't earned, doesn't earn any money yet. So does that make it theoretically, in terms of pain and suffering, worth less? Um, not not necessarily, because you, you do look at the child's. Um, you look at the child's potential earning capacity for their life. You also look at um, the value of that lost relationship to siblings and to parents. And then they also would consider, in some cases, and, and again, it's a fact-based. It's a fact-based issue, so it depends on the situation of the family. But like, if you have a single mom who didn't have a great job and who was kind of living check to check and you know the child was in school to be a uh, doctor or something then mm-hmm. you know cert- certainly when it comes to the mom there'd be some uh, some consideration of potential you know uh, potential not only consortium but support um, but but you know that's not always the case, and it, it really becomes a fact-based determination, just depending upon.
Okay. Well, uh, we are with Stan Willis of Willis Spangler Starling. Ask the attorney. Send your questions to Bruce at 989theanswer.com or post them on the Bruce Hooley Show Facebook page. Willis Spangler Starling located on Truman Boulevard in Hilliard, just a little north of the Mill Run area. So that second question leads us into this third one. Someone wants to know, what do you envision resulting legally from the apartment collapse in Miami? Is it to the adva- to the advantage of victims' relatives to settle as a group or to pursue their cases individually? Uh, they say, it seems to me these things are often decided collectively, like in the case of a plane crash. And, well, what an awful situation, first of all. Yeah, just horrible. <laughs> um, you, you know, um, a situation, situation like that, the uh, the first thing is going to ha- that has to happen is they're going to have to figure out what exactly happened, what right. caused what caused the problem. After you do that, <laughs> then you got to decide. Okay, well, whose fault is that? Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I mean, I don't want to speculate because I don't think anybody really knows yet. But it could be that there was a design flaw. That caused the failure. Well, then, if it's a design flaw, does the particular firm, engineering firm or architecture firm, even still exist that made that that made the that made the particular error? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's not that, then is it something that the owner should have discovered, or is this something that's just going to be covered under an owner's general liability insurance? And so. So the determination of who's at fault at that is going to take a minute, I think. Um, now, you know, in answering the specific question, once the fault's determined, um, there are advantages and disadvantages to the collectivism. Um, typically, uh, if it's if it's going to come back on somebody's insurance, the insurance, ob- insurance obviously has limits. And so if you have multiple people getting the same attorney, then it's possible that everyone could end up at odds because there's only a set amount of money to fight over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that standpoint, if you are in that if you're in that situation where there's only a little bit of money and there are a lot of claimants, uh, then everybody's probably better off having their own attorney. Um, if you if we if you have a situation where there's plenty of insurance and plenty of money then everybody having the same attorney would would um, probably work out okay. And then there's also the possibility that if there's enough people, it could be like a class action. Um, but uh, you know, class actions don't typically turn out as well for the individual claimants as um, just an individual uh, case does. Okay, very good. Ask the attorney. Send your questions. Bruce at 989theanswer.com. Post them on the Bruce Hooley Facebook page. Bruce Hooley Show Facebook page, rather. And we're visiting with Stan Great. Willis of Willis Spangler Starling. Final question. Have you yeah, ever... Very re- somber questions. Today, yes, Bruce. they Great. are. They are somber <laughs> questions. Somber news. Have you ever refused to take a case because of your own personal values? Are you even allowed to do that as a lawyer? Oh, certainly. I'm, I'm not required to take any any particular cases, nor am I required to stay on your case. Um, and this is one of the things that um, does sometimes end up in disputes between attorneys and clients, because often clients think they've hired an attorney, and you know the, 
that they're the ones with the total choice to continue the representation. But, you know, there are a lot of reasons why you might terminate a client. One, like, for instance, um, let's say I have a client who's, um, who's not taking my advice. She's not listening to what I say. At some point, um, you know, <laughs> why are we here? If, yeah. If you're, if you're asking me for advice and then doing whatever you want to do anyway, right? What, what, what's the point of what we're doing here? Um, then you know there there are situations where uh, somebody wants to do something that is uh, well, obviously if somebody wants to do something that is illegal, I, I, I'm not going to jump on and help them out with that. In fact, it would be unethical for me to help somebody do something that's illegal. Um, not allowed to do that, and then. Um, you know, there are there are uh, times where somebody might be planning to do something that I find immoral, immoral, or even just gross, and so, so so then I might choose to not represent that person for that reason. And then a lot of times, I mean, honestly, you know, our job is to kind of listen to the facts, and if if I don't think somebody has uh, I mean, sometimes something bad happens to a person, but they really just don't have anything that they can do. That's also a time when I would not take a case. I'd just say, yeah, I don't think there's anything we can do here. Sure, sure. And so, so sometimes it's just an unfortunate situation. And the one thing I'd say, because we were asked about this in the whole criminal situation, in the idea of the word criminal lawsuits, criminal lawsuits. And again, my friend, we don't we don't currently do anything that's um, criminal. But you know the the idea. I mean, every everyone, the, the, you know, people who do criminal law, the, the job there is to make sure that they're represented under the law, so that the law, so that they're not taken advantage of under the law. It's not necessarily to help them get away with whatever they did. That's it's not necessarily the lawyer's role in a criminal case. Or, or the, the role of the, the lawyer in a criminal case is to make sure that the person gets a fair trial, that the police acted within their authority and not outside of their authority, and that um, you know, basically at the end of the day a person gets the sentence that our system, um, you know, no worse than the sentence that our system provides for that person for what they did. That's the role of the attorney. So in that situation, you might be representing somebody who did something that you find represent, reprehensible from a moral standpoint, but um, you know you're not helping them get away with it. What you're helping do is make sure that they're treated fairly. That's, Understood. Understood. So that's the difference. All right. Well, Stan, as always, we appreciate your time and your willingness to come on and shed light on these questions, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Six twenty-four on the Bruce Hooley Show. Thanks for joining. Uh, interesting timing today. Uh, Co-president Kamala Harris made her much ballyhooed first trip to the quote-unquote border as co-president. Uh, she went to El Paso, Texas, which going there to get eyes on the real border crisis is a little bit like going to. Ocala to get a look at the uh, condominium collapse near Miami. It's not really where the crisis is. But the oddity of this is that the White House goes to pretty significant lengths 
to not divide people's attention from things that they feel will reflect well on them. It's a pretty smart PR strategy. Every White House, if they know their uh, business, does that. But uh, Kamala Harris' press conference in El Paso uh, started at 1.50 p.m. Eastern Time, and only seven minutes later, uh, Joe Biden began his own event at the White House, signing into law a national memorial to the victims of the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. So a little bit odd. A little bit odd. Not as odd, though, as uh, Joe Biden the other day uh, talking about what all he has done for workers in this country. And as you know, Kamala has this tell. When you get her off her game, she has two tells, actually. The first is... To say, don't interrupt me. I wasn't done. Don't interrupt me. She's clearly agitated and uncomfortable when she says that to someone. She said it a lot in the debates with Mike Pence. She said it a lot during the few times she has been available to people as co-president. Her other tell, of course, is to laugh uh, like the Joker about anything that makes her uncomfortable in terms of, for instance, when Lester Holt asked her about you going to the border. <laughs> the border. I've been to the border. <laughs> well, Joe Biden's tell goes a little bit like this. I got them $1.9 trillion relief so far. They're going to be getting checks in the mail that are consequential. I wrote the bill on the environment. Pay them more. This is an employee's employees bargaining chip now what's happening yeah i don't know what's happening except that your tell is when you feel like when joe biden feels like his legislative acumen or his achievements as a senator a vice president or as president are being challenged he goes darth vader he whispers It's very weird. (laughs) It sparked the hashtag Creepy Joe on Twitter the other day. And it uh, led to these comments from Joe Rogan in uh, his latest podcast with Eliza Schlesinger. When they were talking about what era of time would you visit if you could visit any era because you'd like to see some historical event happen, or you'd like to go back and correct some awful, terrible thing that occurred, what era would you visit? Here's Joe Rogan talking about what people will think about the 2020s during the administration of Joe Biden. We're unhinged in a lot of ways, and we're not anchored down by a real leader. You know, we don't really have a real leader in this country anymore. Yeah. I mean, you could say Joe Biden is the president, he's our leader, and you'd, you'd be correct on paper, but I mean... Everybody knows he's out of his mind. He's just, he's barely hanging in there. Out of his mind, barely hanging in there. Uh, Now, it should be noted, Joe Rogan endorsed the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. So if you endorse crazy Bernie, that's your 
grading scale and Joe Biden doesn't measure up to that, well, that's telling. Of course, the craziness persists on No Topic more than COVID. And there's been some interesting updates as far as teenagers getting the vaccine. We'll share those with you next. It's the Bruce Woodley Show.